And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony, fake. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. But I am only against the fake news media or press. Fake, fake. They have to leave that word. I'm against the people that make up stories and make up sources. But they can make anything bad because they are the fake, fake, disgusting news. President Trump often decries what he calls fake news. It's a term also named Word of the Year in 2017 by Collins Dictionary. Widespread use of the phrase fake news is relatively new, and many people now see it as one of the greatest threats to free debate, political stability, and even democracy itself. I'm Sarah McConnell, and this is With Good Reason. Later in the show, how the four presidents of the Internet age have used new media. But first... Fake news has long been used as a way to demonize opponents on both sides of the political spectrum. Elizabeth Losh is a professor of English and American Studies at William & Mary. She specializes in democracy and new media. She says fake news spread via social media is a growing phenomenon that needs to be addressed. Liz, it is scary to be in a period where we can't seem to agree on which sources of information we can trust. That's true. I think that there's a lot of anxiety right now about spreading information through the Internet. But it's happened before that we've had new information technologies, and people have been worried, and we've sort of come to some consensus as a society. A lot of people think about the famous War of the Worlds broadcast in the 1930s about the invasion of the United States by Martians. And after that story was broadcast, many people wrote to the federal government wanting the government to rein in fake news. Actually, if you go back even before radio to the beginnings of the printing press, there were astrological guides that were causing panic all over European cities because they were printing these stories about potential floods that might happen. And so cities were building these barriers and walls against these natural disasters that they thought were headed their way. That never happened? Never happened. But see, anytime you have a new technology, that means you're taking a gatekeeper away who can decide what information reaches an audience and what information gets held back. When you have the printing press, that means that manuscripts in church archives are no longer the final word on something. When you have something like radio... It means that you can create your own radio station and disseminate information. Have we enjoyed a long, halcyon several decades without (laughs) fear of fake news? Well, when the term fake news becomes popular again, it's in connection with shows like The Daily Show by Jon Stewart, uh, who was at one time described as the most trusted man in fake news. So... Um, When you look at shows like Laugh-In or Saturday Night Live that created these fake news broadcasts, um, there was a sense that fake news could actually educate the public or at least entertain the public. But that was pure fun satire, right? Although one of the interesting things is that they discovered that daily show viewers actually were more likely to score well on tests about who their elected representatives were or who members of the cabinet were or other kinds of news items than people who are not uh, viewers of The Daily Show. So since the beginning of the Internet, we can follow three different phases of fake news. The first I call fake news 1.0, and that's the period where the Internet was used to share clips from comedy shows like The Daily Show or The Colbert Report. And that period of time, fake news was often seen as a way to learn about the real news. And it was also a way to sort of bond with people who might share your political opinions. Then you get to fake news 2.0, and that's after September 11th. And what we see there is a distrust of the government, a belief that there could be crisis actors who are pretending to be things that they aren't really. And then we get into our present era, which I call fake news 3.0, where the term fake news becomes a sort of way to think about an undermining of truth altogether, a mistrust of media that's so profound that all news seems to be alternative facts. 
So is the fake news era we're in now, which to me seems like it began with the candidacy of Donald Trump, because he's specifically been using the phrase over and over again, is it really that recent? Not at all. I think that really uh, this mistrust of the news media actually has a much longer history, and we can look at um, all kinds of self-made media, uh, including independent newspapers as part of the ways that people have looked for alternative news sources other than broadcast television. The other thing that's really changed that has very little to do with the Trump administration is the way that we receive news. It used to be that people had a daily cycle where they opened the newspaper in the morning and they watched a news broadcast at night. And now we're exposed to the news all day long and we're exposed to the news through our mobile devices. We're exposed to the news through social networks. And so all day long, we're getting news. But do you personally perceive more danger in the period we're in now where we simply don't know which news organizations, online or no, to turn to for um, definitive, reliable, trusted information? I think the problem now that we're in is that search engines and social network sites are very powerful and very unregulated. And for those organizations, fake news is very profitable because people are more likely to click on a fake news story than a real one because they tend to have catchier titles. And they're more likely to actually share a fake news story than a real one um, because it seems like new information. It seems like something that maybe their friends and their social network haven't heard about. Um, we live in a nation that doesn't believe in regulating communication media a lot. If you look at the rolling back of the fairness doctrine under the Reagan administration, you see the beginning of that deregulation period. Remind us of what the fairness doctrine was. The fairness doctrine was the idea that televised media and radio had to present both sides on a political question. There was even this idea of providing equal time so that if you had a 30-minute news broadcast, that you should try to represent the viewpoints of uh, both political parties. What led to the deregulation of that? Well, it was part of the general deregulation of all sectors of the economy under the Reagan administration. But now under the Trump administration, we're seeing the deregulation of Internet service providers with things like the end of network neutrality. Do you think that this period we're in now where people are deeply fearful for our democracy, if we can't get a handle on how to trust news sources, do you think there will be a re-regulation fervor? I think it's likely that there we might learn something from our European allies. There's a lot more work that's done on funding media literacy, on regulating internet service providers, on reining in search engines and social network sites, generally on controlling fake news. Um, here in the United States, I think the chances of getting any legislation on fake news anytime soon is pretty low. Because if you look at the congressional record, what you see is Democratic elected officials trying to introduce legislation about fake news, and then it's blocked in committee by Republican legislators. And I think part of the problem is that people see fake news as a partisan issue. So you don't think it would be useful to really try to drill down with the captains of technology industry and regulate? Well, I think one of the things that's depressing is that as these social media giants have tried to regulate the spread of fake news, is that legitimate news organizations are actually finding their content being filtered out by Facebook. And a lot of what Facebook is now saying is, oh, we really want you to spread content that's created by friends and family instead of content that's created by journalists. And so I think that in some ways that attempt to filter out fake news has really hurt uh, real news as well, uh, so that um, there are more filters. A news story will be lower on your feed than someone's uh, picture of their baby or kittens. So are you saying not useful to try to regulate Facebook, Twitter, Google? 
I think that they should be regulated, but I think the, the part that needs to be regulated is the part that allows them to track and monitor us. The reason that fake news is profitable is that they can figure out more things about us. And that in Europe, where there are more laws regulating privacy, it's harder for social media companies to have the kind of detailed profiles about citizens. And so there's less incentive to, to spread fake news stories. Don't we all want that? Don't we all want what Europe is doing? Well, I think that there's a long tradition of the marketplace of ideas that's that we believe should be a sort of rough and tumble, unregulated space. We tend to believe that people should be allowed to hear what they want to hear and say what they want to say. What I do think we can do, though, is I think that we can have better media literacy. I think that's something that we can do relatively inexpensively. If you look at countries like the Netherlands or Germany, they invest more public dollars in the curricula for media literacy. Uh, and I think it needs to start early. I, need, I think it needs to be part of K through 12. You're part of an international organization of scholars looking at this very issue. People who are studying the ways that our society is changed by new technology are thinking about the rise of simulation. Computers make it possible to create very convincing replicas of political figures, giving speeches, news stories that seem to come from real places. That technology is something we haven't really figured out what to do with. We're living in a world that is more and more simulated. When you watch a movie with 3D visual effects, you might have a false sense of physics. And that false sense of reality can cover a lot of different domains, everything from artificial intelligence to robots to fake news can potentially be a product of this new culture of simulation. So you're saying strap in? <laughs> I'm saying strap in, but maybe also for us to really support expertise in the humanities. These are going to be very difficult problems to solve computationally. We're going to need to think about our values, and we're going to think about the things that we know as human beings. Well, Liz Losh, thank you for sharing your insights with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for the conversation. Elizabeth Losh is a professor of English and American Studies at William & Mary. She's the author of four books, including the soon-to-be-released Hashtag. Coming up next... Is it personality or politics that makes a president? The rise of social media has given occupants of the White House a new way to shape policy and tout reforms. But it also magnifies the president's personal traits, for good or bad. Stephen Farnsworth is professor of political science and international affairs at the University of Mary Washington and the director of the Center for Leadership and Media Studies there. His latest book is Presidential Communication and Character, White House News Management from Clinton and Cable to Twitter and Trump. Stephen, in your book, looking at the four presidents we've had since the social media age, starting with Clinton, how was Clinton a fairly significant departure from his predecessors? Well, for a long period of time, you had your national television nightly news programming. And that was really what you had to do. The Reagan administration, they got up in the morning and they said, how do we get what we want on the evening news at 6.30 or 7, whenever you might watch it? And you didn't always control the story every day. Something might have happened uh, somewhere else in the world that forces you to react to that. But it was really very different than the world that comes even with the rise of cable television later in Reagan's presidency. The first president to really appreciate the importance of what cable, I think, could do for a president was Bill Clinton 
who used a lot of the talk shows and a lot of the conversation, sometimes even on late night television, to talk about who he was as a person. And so the conversation became less about policy and more about the person. And this is where Clinton is really the pivotal figure. And then, of course, as technology changes and different kinds of media become more important, you have different communication styles by different presidents. But over the last 20 years, we have seen more change in media environments that presidents have to master than in the 50 years before that. So after Clinton, we had Bush the Younger. What did he master in terms of the media landscape? You have to remember, Bush becomes president with a lot of people having doubts about whether he even won the election. And so there's this question of legitimacy with Bush that that starts even before he does in office. And the challenge for Bush then is how you present yourself as a compelling powerful leader. Now, what happened, of course, with 9-11 at first was kind of an unsteady response. Uh, it was only a couple of days later, I think, where he got his footing when he stood on top of that uh, fire truck, the wrecked fire truck at Ground Zero, and said, they're going to hear us all soon. And that's the moment he really becomes a president who masters the media. As you go forward through the Bush presidency, the war in Iraq and these issues, uh, you saw a president who increasingly used Fox News, that he found that this was a vehicle that was becoming more and more prominent. It had been a key issue, of course, in the Clinton impeachment right before Bush was elected, but it was a vehicle that gave a Republican president an opportunity to really speak at length. And Fox News distinguished itself from other media outlets as a conservative voice. So if you were a conservative, the thought was you should be watching Fox. So even when things turned sour for the Bush presidency, the mishandled uh, occupation of Iraq, the continuing war in Afghanistan, you add that up, and that's a pretty unsuccessful presidency. But on Fox News, it still didn't look that bad, even at the end. But would he have tanked if it were not for the economy tanking? If you look back at those poll numbers for Bush, you really saw the big pivoting moment was Katrina, when you saw a really stumbling response to one of the most horrific natural disasters of the last 30 years in the United States. You then add to that the growing resistance in Iraq during Bush's second term. Uh, John Kerry, the 2004 election occurs maybe a year too early for the point of view of a Democratic candidate because the problems of Iraq are much clearer in November of 2005 than they were in November of 2004. And, you know, Bush got lucky that way in terms of timing. Uh, when things went sour, he was already in his second term. So by the time Barack Obama is elected in 2008, does he become the master of social media? Well, I think that what you saw with Obama was the idea that you had to take a much different attitude towards being president and being publicly president. With Clinton and with Bush, you saw the idea that they were for lack of a better way to put it, sort of sung kings of the media, that you had to be in every story. You had to frame every conversation. Every political event should go through the lens of the White House. With Obama, Obama picked his fights. He was a much more diffident president in terms of his approach to the mass media, but he picked his fights very effectively. He used the growing environment of Facebook and YouTube, for example, which becomes a particularly valuable way to reach young people, as a vehicle for getting to them. I mean, one of the true most successful media moments of the Obama presidency was when he went on between two ferns with Zach Galifianakis and exchanged jokes about Zach Galifianakis's movies. And then while he was at it, he said, by the way, the deadline's coming up. Maybe some of you folks want to sign up for the Affordable Care Act so that you have some insurance. It was a genius moment, but it really spoke to Barack Obama getting what the new media could do for him. There's no way George W. Bush would have thought that. You say there's no way you could dominate the news cycle, but look at Donald Trump. Because he tweets and tweets all day, when he sits down with reporters, there are 16 new stories to cover. Well, what Donald Trump has done with Twitter has really sort of recreated the vision of the Reagan dominating the news cycle of the 1980s. But that's not so much because of what Donald Trump is doing. It's more because the way that the media choose to cover Donald Trump. If you pick up a newspaper or you watch a television news program anywhere in America, you're going to see stories day after day after day about what Trump said on Twitter the day before or the hour before. I mean, this is a assignment desk, really, for Washington reporters. What's on Twitter from Trump? Remember, Donald Trump's career was sort of as a media figure in New York City, and then he was a television star on reality TV. It shouldn't surprise us that Donald Trump is good at media. He gets it better than people who've been spending time learning about health care policy, for example. 
When it comes to Donald Trump and the three predecessors, how did they portray their personalities to the American electorate once they were in the White House? What you had with George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush, was somebody who was a really, really savvy person when it came to understanding policy, but not really able to connect with folks. And, and that was a problem because people felt like they were going through hard times in 1991, 1992. They wanted people to understand that. And when Bill Clinton comes on there and, you know, talks about feeling our pain in many ways, you know, talking about, you know, the difficulties in his childhood financially, you know, he seemed like, quote, an ordinary American in a way that George H.W. Bush could never ever pull off. Now, Clinton had his elite credentials as well, but those came later in life. And the reality was that was something that we really wanted. By the time the 2000 election comes along, we're thinking maybe a little bit more high moral standard is a more useful approach, that Bill Clinton's uh, libertine ways demonstrated throughout a year conversation about impeachment and uh, and all the rest made us think maybe we want something like that. And so when Bill Clinton exudes regular person dynamics, um, George W. Bush offers up this kind of toughness and a bit more higher personal moral standard that comes from his religious convictions, that comes from his life experiences, but also comes from you know the political savvy of knowing what's going to work. I think one of the problems with George W. Bush as a president was that he tended to trust his instincts, and sometimes those were good instincts, sometimes they weren't. And when they weren't, they really, really hurt him. And so that created a sense when 2008 rolls around that maybe it'd be nice to have somebody who is more wonkish, who has a sense of like how policy might work. They might have the opportunity to handle things. And to fix the economy. And to fix the economy above all. And then, you know, and then you get Obama, who always seemed more or less up to the job. He might not come up with the best solution. I mean, he stumbled with respect to Syria and whatnot. But but overall, you could look at uh, Obama and say, here's a guy who recognizes that being president is tough and is prepared. Now, what Obama doesn't do well is connect with ordinary folk. And so in many ways, he's like George H.W. Bush being followed by Bill Clinton. And so when Donald Trump comes along, who speaks very effectively to the anger and the anxiety about the future that so many people, particularly in rural communities or in, in industrial towns facing difficult circumstances, when he speaks, they listen. And that was his real genius as a political figure, knowing that the way to defeat the Democrats was to go in a direction where Republicans almost never do, to be this aggressive, vigorous populist speaking to working class concerns in a way that Republicans usually don't. Had we ever heard a presidential candidate speak so darkly about where we are and where we're headed? This is one of the reasons why a lot of people thought that Donald Trump was not going to win the election, because this was so different. Every politician, Democrat or Republican, going back decades, none of them really basically were anything at their core other than optimistic. But with, with Donald Trump, you got the feeling that he really believed that the best days of America might have been in the rearview mirror. And, you know, that's not really something that works in American political culture. One of the beliefs that we have is that tomorrow is going to be better than today, that, you know, the kids are going to have a better opportunity than you did, and that that sort of trajectory towards a steady improvement in conditions, well, you know, that's a little harder to sell when farm towns see all the little kids grow up and go to college and not come back. When industrial towns are filled with factories that haven't turned an engine in a year or 10 years. The reality is that so much of what goes on in Washington doesn't relate to the things that matter to ordinary people. And that is a real challenge for politicians, because I think ultimately there's a hole in American politics. The Democratic Party might be more socially liberal, and the Republican Party might be socially conservative, and that works for some. But a lot of voters are in the middle. They are socially conservative and economically liberal. And that's something that neither party has really done well with. But Donald Trump, when he says, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to worry about coal. When's the last time you heard a politician running for national office worry about coal? I mean, he was probably going to win West Virginia anyway. I don't think that coal made the difference. But he was speaking working class in a way that Hillary Clinton didn't, and arguably Hillary Clinton couldn't. And politically and psychologically, is it more important, do you think, whether a politician like Trump in this case 
fulfills the promise to the little guy that I'm going to make your life better, or better that psychologically they feel like, hey, he makes me feel better because he gets it and he gets me. Well, that'll be the big question to be answered in 2020. Is channeling resentment enough to get Trump another term? Because when you look at the environment for coal, or you look at the environment for factory towns, even with relatively good economy and relatively low unemployment, you're not really seeing these places bound back. If you're thinking about agriculture, for example, the trade wars with China are poisonous, and that may not make it so easy for you to support Trump next time. And the same thing for folks who are looking at health care. If you're looking about the ways in which Trump behind the scenes has made it difficult for private insurance companies to offer a range of policies in given markets because of shrinking the pool of people who are going to be enrolling in these private insurance companies, you're looking at another environment where you know Donald Trump has made it worse for the people who need it the most. And that is a painful reality that will be hard to ignore uh, that ultimately the question of whether Trump really is an effective tribune for the people needs to be front and center in the Democratic conversation going forward. So it'll be a real challenge, I think, for the Democrats to figure out how to deal with Trump. But when you're thinking about the public, it seems to me that the main concern that a lot of voters are going to have going into 2020 is to have somebody who can do the job. It'll be a lot like moving from W to Obama. You know, somebody who has basically played off his instincts for somebody who has more of a of a technical understanding of policy. And so my guess is that this would be a significant thing. It's not clear to me how much fun he's having as president. I think that one of the real questions to to think about when you think about about Trump is whether his heart is really going to be in it. He has options. Yeah, you know, if the Democrats get take control of the house, um, the next 2 years are going to be subpoenas document requests, investigations, and all these things are going to be out there in the public domain in a way that is going to be very, very unfun. Uh, The Democrats will probably find a way to release Trump's tax returns, and we'll find out how much or how little he paid um, when he talked about paying taxes. That'll make the Donald Trump presidency very unfun very fast. Uh, And polls do show right now, as we're having this conversation, that the Democrats are more likely to get the House than not. Well, Stephen Farnsworth, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you. Stephen Farnsworth is Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at the University of Mary Washington. He's also Director of the Center for Leadership and Media Studies there. His latest book is Presidential Communication and Character, White House News Management, from Clinton and Cable to Twitter and Trump. Stephen Farnsworth was also named Virginia Outstanding Faculty in 2018 by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is With Good Reason. For most of us, when we use Facebook, it's to connect with friends and family, laugh at viral videos, and generally learn what's going on in the world. But what started as an innocent social site is becoming a platform for the spread of propaganda and eroding trust in science and journalism. Siva Vadyanathan's new book is Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. Vadyanathan is a professor of media studies and director of the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. Siva, there's a lot of back and forth about Facebook, and you wrote a whole book about it. Mm. Is Facebook really bad for us? You know, it's it's really good for me, and it's probably really good for you, and it's probably really good for everybody listening to this. If it weren't good for us individually, we wouldn't use it. 2.2 billion people around the world use Facebook. They have good reasons for doing that. Collectively, it's terrible for us. You know, you started your book during the 2016 presidential campaign. One of the things you write is that Facebook played a central role in crafting Donald Trump's online advertising for the 2016 race. How so? What do you mean? That as radio station salespeople write the copy for the 30-second ads... 
Facebook wrote the copy for Trump's campaign? Well, not necessarily, but Facebook had staff members in the Trump campaign helping them write their ads, helping them design their ads, and helping them work the Facebook system to carefully target their ads at groups as small as 20 voters at a time. So if you were working for the Trump campaign and you wanted to pull a few votes towards you in Florida, because you knew Florida was going to be close, right? And as it turned out, Trump won Florida by 110,000 votes. That's a little more than the number of people who can fit in the University of Michigan football stadium. So it was a really close uh, uh, battle in Florida, right? So, and they knew that coming in, right? So if, you know, Trump thought he was going to lose the election, everyone working there thought they would lose the election, but the only chance they had was to move a few thousand votes in a handful of states in hopes that the Electoral College would flip. Those states turned out to be Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. So they mounted a really elaborate campaign on Facebook. And by the way, around the country, they ran most of their campaign on Facebook. The Trump campaign officials have been very clear about this. I didn't say that Facebook won the election for Trump. The Trump campaign said Facebook won the election for Trump. But wouldn't this also have been the case for Hillary Clinton? Surely those people were also making deep investments in Facebook and having Facebook people embedded in her campaign. They weren't actually. So Facebook offered Hillary Clinton the same service. They were around, but the Clinton campaign was convinced it knew what it was doing. The Clinton campaign was filled with veterans, experts, people who had worked for Obama in 2012 and Obama in 2008 and Clinton in 2008. And they were all convinced that they know the game, right? They knew how to run a multimedia national campaign in the digital age because that's what Obama seemed to have done. The problem was they were using 2012 data and 2012 technology, and it was already 2016. Facebook had basically changed how Facebook works with campaigns by then, and no one in the Clinton campaign seemed to get that. In addition, even though the Clinton campaign had a lot more money than the Trump campaign, it was spending so much of its money on television, which turns out doesn't make that much difference. It's one of these weird things in the age of Citizens United. Maybe the big money doesn't always win because Facebook changes the game. Facebook was familiar to the amateurs running the Trump campaign. What they had was a group of people who had worked uh, doing the social media and digital media campaign for the Trump organization itself, for the casinos, for the stakes, for the Trump University. They knew how to find suckers. They knew how to use Facebook's ad platform to precisely poke at the sort of anxieties that Americans demonstrate. And Facebook gives every advertiser a whole list of anxieties and, and passions and interests and along with gender and race and political persuasion, right? If you go in and you buy an ad on Facebook, it gives you this amazing menu of attributes of the people you're trying to reach. And you can go really narrow and that means you can tailor an ad for that group and then a very different ad for someone else. So you and I, might receive completely different ads for the same candidate or the same product, even though we live in the same town. It's just that Facebook knows enough about you and enough about me to distinguish between us. So when you realize that the Trump people were super savvy with how to specifically target these really small groups or niche groups, what's an example of something that startled you and impressed you? With right. A kind of ad that was used with a kind of population. Right. So they did it better than anyone has ever done, which is how they won the uh, Electoral College while losing by three million votes. That takes talent, right? So, for instance, um, there are a large number of men of Haitian descent who live in South Florida. A lot of them speak and read French as a first language. And if you want to de depress their vote, like... Uh, convince them not to vote for Hillary Clinton because most of them were, you know, sort of predictably Hillary Clinton voters. You can do uh, a kind of a targeted campaign that doesn't look like it's coming from the Trump campaign. And you can remind these men of Haitian descent that Bill Clinton marched around Haiti with a big smile in 2010 after the earthquake, promising to bring all this money and recovery and education and all this stuff and nothing got better in, the, in Haiti. And then that might, you know, you might convince at least a few thousand of them, you know, this Clinton family, they don't really come through when they promise, right? They're just, they're just talking a big game. I just, I can't vote for Trump because, you know, for all those reasons, but maybe I just don't want to vote. And if you, if you convince five or 10,000 men of Haitian descent in South Florida with a French language ad that doesn't seem to come from the Trump campaign, but just reminds them of a problem with the Clinton record, 
you know, that's five or 10,000 out of that 110,000 who that, that made up the difference in Florida. What are some of the ways that outside the United States, democracies and nation states are being undermined by this kind of activity? So we got off, we got off easy in the United States. What we ha- are seeing in other countries are free but unfair elections, uh, places like India, places like the Philippines, uh, places like uh, um, places like Hungary, uh, Kenya. And in all of these cases, you have very strong right wing nationalist leaders who are tapping into the public's anxieties, often anxieties about foreigners or others, anxieties about certain ethnic groups, anxieties about globalization, anxieties about Islam. Uh, and they are starting on Facebook and finishing on Facebook. They are spreading propaganda both in their party's name and, and outside of it that um, whips up animosity against these other groups and whips up support for their own party, their own ethnic group, their own religious group, whatever it is. Uh, and they're turning it into electoral success. Once they get into office, they make sure to crack down on dissent. And for this, Facebook and WhatsApp are perfect. You can make a critic's life miserable through Facebook and WhatsApp. So, for instance, in India, Narendra Modi, who has a record of overseeing and tolerating mass violence, pogroms against Muslims. You know, for a while he was banned from coming to the United States because of his brutality, his party's brutality against Muslims. Now he's running the world's largest democracy, which is 20% Muslim. And what he has done is he's maintained power largely through this effort of making sure that anybody who raises criticisms against his party or against Modi gets harassed, gets rape threats, death threats, kidnapping threats, threats against their children. They will encounter their face on other people's bodies of photographs and videos being whipped around Facebook and WhatsApp. Uh, And while people might not believe it, you spend your entire day trying to defend yourself against this nonsense, defend yourself against the barrage, protect your family. You can't do your work, right? So if you're a critic, if you're a journalist, if you're a human rights organizer, if you're a gay rights organizer, you can't do your work because you're constantly worried and constantly afraid and constantly knocked off of your game by this level of harassment. Facebook is perfect for that. I know that you're not very optimistic, but what are some of the things we can do that might put curbs on Facebook mm-hmm. or or give it more oversight, even though in the beginning, the Facebook team said, this is, you know, let, let creativity flower. Right, right, right. Don't regulate this. Let people <laughs> communicate with each other and connect. So it's important to remember three things about Facebook. These are the things that make Facebook Facebook. One is its scale, 2.2 billion people and growing. Second is what I call algorithmic amplification. The fact that when you post something on Facebook, if it's the sort of thing that generates strong emotions, it will fly around Facebook, make it to a lot of people's profiles, make it high on their profiles, show up often. So that means Facebook favors content that is extreme. Now, extreme can be a really cute baby or a really cute puppy, but it can be hate speech. It could be conspiracy stuff, right? So algorithmic amplification makes it really hard to have deliberation, to have deep thought and deep conversations on Facebook. Almost impossible. But the third thing is the advertising thing that we talked about, the advertising platform, the fact that it's so good at targeting ads, so good at picking out uh, who might be susceptible to an ad, so good at generating money that it's sucking all this money away from what we used to call mainstream journalism, right? It's sucking all the money away that used to pay for reporters for a Moscow bureau of the Baltimore Sun. The Baltimore Sun used to have a Moscow bureau. I mean, that's where the money was, right? That money's not there anymore. It's all in Silicon Valley. It's all in Facebook and Google now instead of at the Baltimore Sun. The Baltimore Sun has maybe a quarter of the reporters it had 20 years ago, right? So it can't even cover Baltimore well, let alone Moscow, Right. So that's happening. That's undermining our democracy. What do you do about these three things? This is why you you said I'm mostly pessimistic, because those are the things that make Facebook Facebook. Those are the things that are really hurting us. And I can't see any way to undo those three things. Now, there are there are regulatory interventions that can curb the expansion and growth and effect of some of those things. So, for instance, if we had data protection laws in this country that allowed us to control what companies know about us and how they use that data, basically giving us a stake in the data that we create about ourselves, that would help. That would limit what Facebook could do behind our backs. But then the the other thing that I think we really need in this country is stronger antitrust. 
we should break up Facebook. We should make sure that uh, that Instagram and WhatsApp and Oculus Rift all get spun off of Facebook so they're competing companies. It's too dangerous for one company to have all that control of our data and our minds. So what if we started an education campaign saying, use it very narrowly. Mm-hmm. Turn on all these productions where so-and-so can see your stuff. Turn off the news feed or turn off. I mean, are there simple bits we can do to try to reach, you know, on a, on a broad campaign level, like don't smoke? No, there's nothing. There's nothing. Um, so a couple of reasons. One, unlike smoking, Facebook doesn't kill any individuals unless you happen to be on the short end of a campaign for genocide. Uh, but the people who are dying in those genocidal campaigns aren't necessarily Facebook users. No, but what I mean differently. What I mean is, are there aspects of the inevitable Facebook accounts that we're not going to turn off that we could do that would mitigate? No. Facebook works as Facebook wants it to work. Facebook has all of these features by default ready to work in Facebook's favor. You know, you can tweak little things and they give you the impression that you have control, but they watch everything you do and they use everything you do and it really doesn't matter. Um, The difference between an anti-smoking campaign and an anti-Facebook campaign is that the message smoking will kill you is powerful. Facebook won't kill you by using Facebook, right? So that's not very helpful. People are not going to quit Facebook because it's good for the Rohingya. They don't know who the Rohingya are. But your advice is we should break it up. We should. But here's the thing. I don't want us to act as individuals. I always resist self-help. I always resist the notion that there is something we can do, that education will make a difference, uh, largely because young people aren't the problem. 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds, they're the people who cause real damage in the world and on Facebook. So education is not going to help. But, but here's the reason I resist that. It encourages us to act as something other than citizens. We are not consumers of Facebook. We don't buy anything on Facebook from Facebook. If we were advertisers, that might be different, but we're not. We're cattle, right? What really matters, what would matter, is if we acted as citizens. If we demanded of our leaders that they take these problems seriously, that they take seriously the concentration of wealth and power among a handful of companies in this country and in this world, and broke them up. Siva Vadianathan is the author of Antisocial Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. He's the director of the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. We've always had strong disagreements over politics, but Facebook is dividing us even more. Jamie Settle is the author of Frenemies, How Social Media Polarizes America. She teaches political science at William & Mary and directs the Social Networks and Political Psychology Lab there, where she uses large data sets derived from social networks like Facebook to better understand how social media is influencing how we think and feel and behave politically. Interestingly, a lot of the time, people don't even realize when they're being political on Facebook. So you see that 75% of people say that they rarely or never post about politics on Facebook, but an equally large proportion say they've learned the political views of others. So clearly there's communication going on that's signaling our political views, even if we don't realize we're doing so. So take, for example, someone who posts a picture of themselves. They've gone to the farmer's market that morning, and they talk about driving their Prius to go pick up kale at the farmer's market. In and of itself, that's not political, but there are a lot of associations in our society between different cultural preferences and our political views, and so a lot of people are going to make an inference that that person is a liberal, for example. Someone who posts a picture attending a country music concert, we may make the inference that they're more likely to be a Republican based on the associations we hold between people's music preferences and their political views. Did we have this problem before the Obama years? So let's go back. I know Facebook was younger then, but were we judging each other looking for Priuses and country music concerts and that kind of thing? 
Well, it's important to keep in mind that polarization has been happening in our country for decades at this point. But I think the norms have changed on social media a bit. I think that when Facebook first began, people did not post nearly as much content or did not uh, circulate as much politically relevant content. I also think that because of the amount of polarization, there are more and more instances of politicized news events. I think the most recent example would be Nike's advertisement with Colin Kaepernick, for example. You can imagine that this happened before social media in the form of bumper stickers, for example, putting the candidate that you cared about or a pro-environmental message. Um, now I see students all the time who have stickers on their laptop uh, or stickers on their, their water bottles that are endorsing Planned Parenthood or another organization like that. The difference is you don't get this immediate quantifiable feedback in terms of the amount of support from your social network for those political views. Sure, people might honk at you, but you don't know if they're honking at you because they agree or they disagree. On Facebook, you get an immediate quantified number of people who like what you just posted and agree with it. Aren't most people's friends sharing their points of view politically and therefore it's not so much polarized as siloed? I think that's a really interesting question in the sense that, yes, you're right, our close family and friends are more likely to share our political views. However, Facebook creates the possibility for two things that we wouldn't see in an offline context. The first is that we are connected to an awful lot of what we call weak ties. These are the friends of our friends, people we've met once or twice, maybe through our family members, and we become linked to them, but we don't know them very well. And because we don't know them very well, they're less likely to share our political views, and we don't have as much other social information about them. And so because of this, even though we are similar to the people we're closest to, we're exposed to more differences through this large number of weak tie friendships that we have on the site. The second thing is what I call the fly on the wall effect. In people's day-to-day -day lives offline, sure, they occasionally encounter people who disagree with their political views, but most people try to minimize that. But on Facebook, what we see is if you have a contact who disagrees with you politically and posts something, you get to see all of their friends who agree with them chime in. And so what you're seeing is this outside view of a bunch of people that you disagree with all reinforcing their own views and probably, in your mind, using biased sources. You said this polarization of Americans politically has been growing for decades and decades. Has it? Has it been just since World War II when we were united with a common enemy? So we've debated this in political science for many decades at this point, but most people point to the 1970s as the beginning of the time when the political parties were realigning and conservatives have began to find a home in the Republican Party and liberals came to find a home in the Democratic Party. Now, the debate has been, have people's viewpoints actually become more extreme? Are people more liberal and more conservative now than they were in the past? And there's not a lot of consistent evidence that people's actual policy opinions have become more extreme, but people are more sorted. Uh, they're more consistent in their viewpoints than they have been in the past. And the big growth is in the concepts that we call effective polarization and perceived polarization. And this is the sense of tribal identity, us versus them. Is there any sort of historical analogy to what Facebook is doing in terms of polarizing us now or social media is doing now? Is there a sort of a social psychology of what happens when we're subjected to just sort of one side? Definitely. I mean, I, I think that it's important to remember that these are psychological processes that are going to happen with or without social media. I think you can look uh, at other times in American history. So, for example, uh, Thomas Paine and the publication of Common Sense. That went viral, and certainly people had very strong opinions about the content of that pamphlet. And so you can many of the things we think are unique about social media you can find historical analogs to, as humans, this is how our brains work, and we're very predisposed to this strong in-group loyalty and strong judgment of what we perceive as the out-group. Is there any antidote to this? What, what's the next step for us to sort of 
get out of this cycle of despair and polarization? Well, I think social media is part of it. How could we make changes to social media sites and changes to our behavior that would help us not give in to these bad impulses of our behavior? And it really is going to be a combination of Facebook changing certain features of the site to incentivize us to behave in different ways. And so I I have some ideas about how that could help. But ultimately, it's up to us to think about what's the kind of dialogue that we want to have about politics in our country. There's a, a, a lot of other big picture things we need to think about in terms of um, what we want to change about our elections and about the rhetoric that our elites use and, and how we've come, what's become acceptable for the way that we talk about people that we disagree with. Yeah, but really we're just people and we just want to be on Facebook to see pictures of others and to share our lives with others. We don't really want to have to sort of take a deep breath and go against our instincts and impulses, right? Right, but counterintuitively, I actually think one of the best solutions to the problems I study on Facebook is to get more people to post more information about their political and social views. Sure, people who eat kale are more likely to be liberal, but there are plenty of kale-eating conservatives. And so if people start sharing more about their social and political views, we'll begin to see that it's not nearly as clean a mapping as most people have in their minds. Jamie Settle is author of Frenemies, How Social Media Polarizes America. She directs the Social Networks and Political Psychology Lab at William & Mary and was named Outstanding Faculty of 2017 by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quance, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. We had help this week from Raymond Lenz and Deborah Farmer of WHRV. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.